Hey, great to see you, Purpose Church. Uh, so good to be together. Today we're going to continue our series from the book of Colossians called Jesus is Greater Than. And this morning we're going to look at Jesus is Greater Than Another Gospel. This might be the most important message I've ever preached in my 40 years as a pastor. But I did realize just a few days ago that today is Valentine's Day. I didn't realize that when I prepared uh, my message for today. And I thought, oh, this is going to be a terrible Valentine's Day message. You're going to see what I mean when we get into the material. But then I felt the Lord say to me, no, Glenn, it's a perfect Valentine's Day sermon. Because Valentine's Day is all about love. And when a pastor loves his church, he speaks the truth to his church. He protects the sheep of his flock, particularly the younger sheep. Now, if you are watching online today for the first time, this is going to be a different kind of message than I usually preach. I do not usually criticize other pastors. I do not like doing that. So know uh, that today is a very different teaching than usual. I've been a pastor for 40 years but my first sermon was actually 50 years ago uh, this month uh, when I was uh, 14 years old. And it was actually uh, at a speaking competition in a totally secular setting. And I preached as a 14-year-old at this secular uh, speaking uh, competition. I preached this fire and brimstone message about God's coming judgment on America. Uh, <laughs> which is, uh, those of you who've been around, you know that's not too characteristic of me. And so uh, I, I'm sure it went over like a lead balloon in, in that audience. Uh, but I like to preach this kind of sermon about once every 50 years, about once every half century. So aren't you lucky to be watching today? You're like the person that gets hit by a comet that comes around every 50 years. Aren't you blessed to be here and to be watching uh, today? Uh, we here at Purpose Church, we, we love usually. And my heart, my gift is exhortation or encouragement. And so my heart and the heart of our church is to play offense, to go on offense, uh, loving and reaching people for Jesus. But every once in a while, you gotta play defense, uh, like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers did last Sunday. Every once in a while, you, you gotta play defense. Uh, do you know that 22 out of the 27 books in the New Testament, 22 out of the 27 books in the New Testament talk about false teachers and false teaching within the church. The entire book of Jude is devoted just to that topic. Um, encouragement to keep the true faith and to practice discernment is mentioned in every single book of the New Testament. So you gotta sometimes go on defense uh, you got to protect the flock. You got to speak the truth in love. And that's what we're going to do here today. Christine Kane writes We need to replace the lies of the enemy with the truth of God. To do so, we need to know the truth of God. Uh, if we're not careful, error can slip into our Christian lives so easily. Um, that happened to my family when I was about 12 years old. In our house, we had this intercom system where every room had like an intercom in it. And so there was an intercom right over my bed as, as a 12-year-old. And every Sunday night, we would go to bed and listen to these two preachers. We'd get back from Sunday night church and get into bed about 10 o'clock. And from 10 to 10.30, uh, I would listen to Billy Graham's Hour of Decision. It would be through the whole house and the intercom right over my bed as I fell asleep. Uh, that was from 10 to 10.30, Billy Graham, Hour of Decision. 
Then from 10.30 to 11, Billy Graham was followed by this preacher named Garner Ted Armstrong. And he was really a good preacher and very interesting, did a lot about Bible prophecy. And so we just had the one-two punch every Sunday night. Billy Graham and, and, and then Garner Ted Armstrong didn't think anything of it. Did this for, I don't know, a, a year or two. Uh, he was from Pasadena, California. So I grew up in Virginia, and we just thought anything from California is going to be sound uh, doctrinally, right? And uh, we just went right on like that until my pastor preached a sermon on a Sunday night about um, false teaching in its various forms. And one of the people he talked about was Garner Ted Armstrong, who believed in this thing called British Israelism. British Israelism, where he believed that the nation of Great Britain had the same covenant relationship with God that the nation of Israel did in the Old Testament, hence the name British Israelism. And uh, there's a danger of any nation doing that, not just Britain, as taught by Garner Ted Armstrong. I uh, heard a pastor uh, close his sermon uh, that went like this. I, I clo closed my sermon in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, George Washington, John Adams, and John Witherspoon. And so put those uh, leaders of our background in America right up there with Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, there is absolutely no problem with love of country or patriotism. I, I consider myself a very patriotic person. I love my country. No problem with appreciating your nation's heritage or being proud of your nation's heritage. But when you, when you cross the line into believing that your nation has the same covenantal relationship with God that Israel did in the Old Testament, that's where the problem comes. Nothing wrong with Christian nationalism, but Christian nationalism when it, it has to do with patriotism or love of country or, or being proud of your nation's heritage or celebrating your nation's heritage. But when it crosses that line into thinking that your nation has a covenant relationship with God equal to or similar to what God had with Israel in the Old Testament, that's where it's unhealthy and that's where I believe myself that it's improper. And so we listened to Billy Graham from then on from 10 to 10.30 and we turned off the radio at 10.30 and no longer listened to Garner Ted Armstrong. Um, and so uh, the the, the error and, and, and false teaching and, and, and imbalanced teaching can slip so easily into a Christian home. My parents were both Sunday school teachers. My dad was the elder of our Presbyterian church. But uh, I want to do today, for us today, what my pastor did for my family uh, back uh, years ago. And what Paul did for the Colossians, what God, what Paul did for the Ephesians and all the churches that he led, uh, he had a farewell to a last closing speech to the Ephesian elders, and Paul warned them about savage wolves. Uh, we pick it up now in Acts 20, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the good news, the gospel of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. This was his farewell address. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. 
For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the, distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Be vigilant. Be discerning. Be on your guard because it's so easy for false teaching to slip into a church, into the body of Christ across our nation in America, uh, or into our in individual lives. And we got to be on our guard. Uh, years ago, before 9-11, a, a couple of different times, I went and spoke at a Bible conference in Pakistan. And uh, we had some contacts from our church, Priscilla Constantine is a missionary from our church that worked at a Christian hospital. And Dr. Luke Cutherell, he was uh, a, a running buddy of mine. We ran track together uh, back at Wheaton College. And so I had those two connections and just went out and spoke at this Bible conference. And, and after it was over, uh, Luke wanted to take me out into the rural countryside of that section of, uh, of uh, near Islamabad in that part of Pakistan, uh, kind of near to the Afghanistan border. And he said, now we got to be careful when we go out there because there's this guy, this was pre-9-11, I'd never heard the name before. He says, there's this guy named Osama bin Laden. And so we've got to be on our guard and we've, we've got to be vigilant. So we spent the night at this little area where there were some bunk beds and, and we slept in them. And so they put a guard at the door to where we were sleeping with a Kalashnikov, a machine gun, across his lap. And there he was, and he fell asleep with this machine gun on his lap, guarding the door. And my friend Luke, he just loves to tell this story. He thinks it's the funniest story ever. I had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, and I just couldn't believe it. And I'm like, oh, no, because this guy with the machine gun, he sound asleep. And I've made it a real point in my life not to startle anybody that's sleeping with a machine gun in their lap. And so Luke loves to tell the story. He heard my voice, a timid little voice going, sir, sir. And he, he spoke Urdu and I spoke English, so he didn't know what I was saying. Uh, excuse me, sir, I, I have to go to the bathroom now. Um, you know, please don't blow me away or shoot me when I get up and, start, and startle you. But it was a very comforting thing to have a guard in Osama bin Laden's backyard with a machine gun right across the door, the entrance to where we were sleeping. And the same thing is true for us. We need to, Paul says, so be on your guard. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about that statement from church history, in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and in all things charity. And a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how to be at peace with each other despite our differences in the non-essentials, the things that are not as clearly taught uh, within Scripture. But today, we're gonna look at the necessity of being unified in the essentials, the things clearly taught in God's word. Now we have some examples of essentials uh, in our passage from Colossians today. Colossians 1 verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. There's an essential. Jesus is fully God, a fully divine, fully human, but also fully God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. There's another essential. Through Christ, uh, he is going to be our bridge. He's going to be the go-between between a holy God and an unholy, sinful us. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood, the shed blood of Jesus, will be that which will reconcile us to God, between God and us, shed on the cross. There's another essential. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If, if you continue in your faith established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And so those are some of the essentials of the faith that we are to be unified about. Uh, he warns us now in different places uh, later on in Colossians and different places throughout his letters about not going after another gospel to stick with the gospel that he gave to us, that God gave to us uh, through Christ. Uh, Paul warns us about uh, fine-sounding arguments. Uh, later on, we'll cover this. I, I, I think maybe even next Sunday we'll be covering this. Uh, Colossians 2, verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Uh, he warns us later, a few verses later, and we, I think we'll deal with this in a couple of weeks from today about hollow and deceptive philosophy. Colossians 2 verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. He warns us about another gospel in Galatians chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. And then he warns us about a different gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. He says we're not to tolerate any other gospel, not to go after another gospel. Uh, Paul also warned us about having what he called itching ears. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, what they want to do, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And at the end of this message, I'll share what some of them share that our itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Uh, Jesus warned us about false roads in Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. 
but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few uh, will find it. Uh, Paul warned us about being ashamed of the gospel. And this is a great temptation that we all face. I, I know that I do. We're all friends here. We can be honest about this. Let me ask you a question. Wherever you are in your, in your living room or watching this on your computer, wherever you are, have you ever been embarrassed by something in the Bible? Have you ever been embarrassed by something in the Bible or by something that we're supposed to believe as followers of Christ? My hand is up. Is there anything about what we're supposed to believe that is slightly embarrassing or anything you find in the Bible that's a bit embarrassing? Hey, my, my hand's up. But you see, you have a choice, and I have a choice. You can either dig deeper and try to understand it more, or you can stop believing it. Those are the choices. When something in the Bible is hard to accept, when it's hard to believe, when it's even a bit embarrassing, you can either uh, dig deeper to try to understand it better, or you can stop believing it. And a lot of people have chosen the latter. I mean, this has been from the very beginning in the first century of the church. Uh, Marcion lived from 85 to 160 uh, AD, and he was embarrassed by the God of the Old Testament. So he cut out of his Bible the entire Old Testament. He got rid of 16 books in what today we know as the New Testament because they were too Jewish. And so he ended up with the Gospel of Luke and 10 letters from Paul and shrunk it all the way down from 66 books to 11 books that he wasn't embarrassed by. Uh, if you've ever been to Monticello, the birthplace of President Thomas Jefferson in Charlottesville, Virginia, you'll see uh, Thomas Jefferson's Bible in which he cut out everything he didn't like and he only kept the parts of the Bible that weren't embarrassing to him, that he was not ashamed of. In the 1960s, uh, liberal theologians and pastors. Now, when I say liberal, I'm not talking about politically liberal. I'm talking about theologically liberal. So I'm not talking about the difference between uh, liberal and conservative uh, uh, politically. That's part of the non-essentials that we talked about a couple of weeks ago that we can disagree agreeably and be part of the same church family and we can be at peace with each other. I'm not talking about politically. I'm talking about theologically liberal. And liberal theologians and pastors back in the 1960s were embarrassed by certain essentials of the gospel. Uh, things like the resurrection, or the deity of Christ, or the virgin birth. And so because they were embarrassed by them, they simply stopped believing them. I remember a pastor in the small town, Homer, New York, that Kimberly and I pastored at, just a few miles from the uh, Canadian border uh, near Syracuse, New York. And in this town where I first pastored, I remember talking to a pastor who told me that he hated Easter because he was forced to talk about a corpse. He hated Easter because he didn't believe in the resurrection and it forced him to talk about a corpse that he did not believe in. And so this has been going on uh, since the, the beginning of time. People get ashamed of the gospel. And that's why Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I mean, today, I believe much of progressive Christianity is a desire to be liked by the culture, a desire to not be embarrassed uh, in front of the culture. They, they, they want to be liked by everybody and, and, and want to just feel like they can get along with everybody and there's nothing offensive about the gospel that they fall, follow. But Paul said there's a time 
to make sure that we are not ashamed of the gospel. We stand for the gospel even when it's difficult and unpopular and not culturally hip and cool to do so. So he said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Now, I'm gonna make a confession to you. Uh, this, this whole sermon is basically an infomercial for a book. Um, Christina Lamaster, Christina, uh, Jared is our worship pastor, and this is his wife, Christina, and there's their, their four boys, the Lamaster boys. And Christina uh, mentioned this book to me. And, and I went out and got it, and it's written by Alyssa Childers, and it's called Another Gospel with, with a question mark. And uh, this book, I am fired up about. You ever read a book and you say, that book says exactly what I see going on in our country, in the body of Christ, um, a, a danger to our church, a danger to our walk with Christ. Do you, do you ever read something and you just say, this is, this is exactly, this hits the nail on the head and, 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 it's, and, it's, and it's an easy read. It's, it's, it's very, very readable. It's just a fast read, a couple hundred pages, but it's very readable. It's in a, written in a popular style, not an academic style, and so it's very, very easy read. And I would love it if everybody in our, in our church got this book, uh, particularly if you're under the age of 40. The subtitle to the book is, a lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity. Now, when I say progressive, I do not mean progressive politics, like liberal and conservative politics. Uh, that's part of the things that we can uh, disagree on agreeably. Um, I'm not talking, when I say progressive, I'm not talking about progressive politics against conservative politics. I'm talking about progressive Christianity. A lifelong Christian seeks truth in response to progressive Christianity. And I am so fired up about this, and particularly getting this in the hands of those who are under the age of 40 uh, to young adults, that I want to tell you what, here's what Kimberly and I are going to do. If you email me by Wednesday, um, the reason is my assistant is going on vacation after Wednesday, and Tina Tong is the one that makes everything happen around here, and so um, Tina's going to go away. So if you, but it, she goes away on Thursday. But if you get, if you email me by Wednesday, if you have a financial difficulty in getting this, it's about fifteen dollars per paper book, paperback on Amazon. It's about ten dollars in eBooks. Uh, you can get it for ten, or you can get it for about fifteen for a paperback. But if that's impossible for you financially, you email me and I'm gonna get you a copy of this book because I want every follower of Jesus at Purpose Church, particularly those under the age of 40, I want you uh, to, to read this book. Lee Strobel, who's probably the top um, defender of the Christian faith, what we call a Christian apologist uh, in, the, in the world or in our country today, Lee Strobel said about about this book, about the book Another, Another Gospel by Alyssa Childers, he said it may be the most influential book that you will read this year. Now in the book she talks about recycled air. You know, sometimes we think, oh, this new teaching is so hip and it's so uh, you know, fresh and it's just a fresh way uh, to look at the gospel. No, it is just recycled air. 
that just keeps getting recycled. Satan keeps recycling it generation to generation. Uh, like Gnosticism that uh, Pastor Eric talked about last Sunday. Or Marcion that I talked about uh, a few minutes ago in, in the early church. Uh, or uh, or uh, like liberal theology in the 60s or so-called progressive Christianity today. It's just recycled uh, false teaching, recycled error. Uh, Solomon wrote uh, 3,000 years ago, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Now, let's talk and, and own up to this. What has made people open to another gospel? And we've got to own this as the church. And I've got to own this uh, as a pastor. Uh, don't use this as an excuse. Don't miss out on, on the truth that all God has for you because Christians make mistakes and churches make mistakes. But what makes people open to another gospel? Number one, abuse of power in the church. Uh, Kimberly and I, when we were uh, in Homer, New York, and there was a church in our town during much of our time there that was not a theological cult. It didn't have false teaching, but I would call it a sociological or an emotional cult. And that is the tremendous power that people held over each other. And there was a hierarchy in the church. Just to give you an example, those that were the regular people in the church were supposed to clean the houses of those that were staff in the church. And those that were staff in the church, they were supposed to clean the houses of the pastors. And then the pastors, depending on their rank, were supposed to clean the house of the person that was above them. Uh, I tried to get this, uh, our staff to do this here. Uh, I just thought it'd be so awesome to have Pastor Eric have to clean my house. That was just awesome. But it didn't go over very well, and so that, that didn't, I'm just kidding. And I shouldn't kid about this, because it was a devastatingly, uh, abuse of power, and it wounded people. When this whole thing blew up and the church fell apart and a bunch of their people came to our church, Kimberly and I felt like we were exit counselors uh, for the last few years that we were in Homer. Kimberly, Kimberly particularly, she had this women's Bible study on Monday night that was just a tremendous Bible study, and half the women that were in it that Kimberly led this Bible study, uh, half of them were from this church, and oh, the woundedness she dealt with because they had been in a church that abused their power and manipulated them and, and controlled them. But let me just say, don't let a bad experience with something unhealthy keep you from pursuing something healthy. Don't let a bad experience with something unhealthy keep you from pursuing something that's healthy. Uh, a second reason people are open to it is there's no safe place to doubt in the church. We want Purpose Church to be a safe place to deal with your doubts. I had the privilege a few weeks ago to be with Pastor Eric when he was uh, sharing with a young adult, uh, dynamic, highly, highly intelligent young adult within our church. And just to watch Pastor Eric in action, helping this young man work through his doubts and, and come out of it into a healthy place, it was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I just wanna say to you, if you have doubts, and we all struggle with doubts, keep digging. Keep digging. The answers are there. I guarantee with whatever you're struggling with in the area of doubts, the answers are there. Uh, young adults, I know that on social media, there are just so many what I call drive-by attacks on Christianity where they just drop something and you've never heard of it before and you're like, oh my goodness, that sure sounds true. Let me encourage you, dig deeper. 
dig deeper, there are always answers to those drive-by attacks on social media of Christianity. I, again, going back to my Homer days where Kimberly and I pastored for 12 years before we came here to Pomona, and I was a young pastor, and I had a dumpy car, d- dumpy car, um, and I parked it in the church parking lot, but my assistant, uh, she had this really awesome car. Her husband uh, worked for the railroad, and they had a bit of money, and so she had a nice car, and she parked it right in front of our office, which was right by the street that everybody could drive by and see it. And so the rumor spread in our little small town that that was not her car, it was my car. And boy, that young preacher, he must be ripping off the church and, and stealing from him in order for him to afford a car like that at his stage in life. Well, if people just dug a little deeper, they would have found out it was completely untrue. And that's exactly the way it is with these drive-by attacks on Christianity. Dig deeper. The answers are always there. Uh, Number three, the moral demands of historic Christianity. Now, interestingly enough, in the early church, it used to be the thing that attracted people to Christianity. You know that? The thing that sometimes people give up following Christ because of the high moral demands was the very thing that attracted them to Jesus um, during, the early, during the early church, especially, especially sexual morality. Sexual morality was something that protected women, protected children, protected marriages, protected the family, and built a stronger community. One of the top historians in the world is Rodney Stark, and, and, and he writes about this. Uh, he says that uh, recent objective evidence Uh, Recent objective evidence leaves no doubt that early Christian women did enjoy far greater equality with men than did their pagan and Jewish counterparts. A study of Christian burials in the catacombs under Rome based on 3,733 cases found that Christian women were nearly as likely as Christian men to be commemorated with lengthy inscriptions. This near equality in the commemoration of males and females is something that is peculiar to Christians and sets them apart from the non-Christian populations of the city. This is true not only of adults, but also of children, as Christians lamented the loss of a daughter as much as a son, which was especially unusual compared with other religious groups in Rome. Uh, And then a, a fourth area that people struggle with is trouble with the Bible. Just something in the Bible that we don't understand or something that we're embarrassed by. And I just encourage you again, keep digging. The answers are always there. There may be superficial errors in the Bible, but when you dig beneath the surface, you will find answers to your questions every time. Number five is legalism in the church. Oh, you know, we had that saying earlier, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And basically what legalism is, is when you elevate a non-essential to the level of a, an essential, and you force that everybody believe and be unified about something that is a non-essential, you treat it the same way you would with one of the essentials of the faith. Um, a sixth reason is the p- problem of suffering. Why is there evil in the world? Again, I encourage you to keep digging, keep digging. I believe that Christianity has by far the best answer to the problem of suffering and evil in the world. And then number seven, the false perception that Christianity is anti-science and nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Science actually was birthed out of Christianity and supports Christianity. And all of the most recent scientific discoveries 
uh, point to a designer behind the design of the universe. I've been reading this awesome book called A Mousetrap for Darwin by Michael J. Behe. Uh, Michael Behe is a biochemist in the Department of Biological Sciences at Levi uh, University. He writes, uh, how could Darwin's clunky mechanism, one tiny random change at a time, each followed by a long, fitful, and uncertain period of natural selection with no ability to anticipate future needs, account for the molecular marvels that modern biology has uncovered? Increasingly, the answer became it couldn't. And that's the problem for Darwin. The molecular foundation of life has turned out to be astoundingly, gobsmackingly, sophisticatedly elegant beyond words. It's not only that the information in life is stored in a genetic code, a feature that's strongly evocative of intelligence and the likes of which had never been anticipated by chemical principles. Rather, it's that the more researchers look, the more and more levels of codes, programs, and controls are found. Yet for those willing to see, the solution is blazingly obvious. Whenever we come across logic maps in our everyday world or a factory that contains an elaborate network of interlocking assembly lines, we immediately conclude that they were purposely put together. Such arrangements simply reek of design. They simply, they simply reek of design. Now, Let's spend the remainder of our time talking about what form does another gospel take today? We talked about the form it took in the early church with Gnosticism and Arsian type, what it took in the 60s with um, watering down uh, of the gospel and of things that people believed. But what form does another gospel uh, take uh, today? And from this point on, I'm going to be quoting progressive Christian pastors and leaders. So the things I'm quoting now, I, we do not believe. I do not believe. We do not believe as a church. But I'm quoting progressive Christian pastors and leaders, and then I will follow it with the scripture that counters what this other gospel is saying uh, today. First uh, characteristic of five characteristics. First of all, a Bible without authority. A Bible without authority. Progressive Christians see the Bible as just another book. Rob Bell writes, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. And Paul counters this in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. He says, all scripture is God-breathed, authoritative, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training uh, in righteousness. A second characteristic of the other gospel, another gospel today, is it has a cross uh, without atonement. Uh, progressive Christians call God sending Jesus to die on the cross for us, they call that cosmic child abuse. Uh, Michael Gunger writes, I would love to hear more artists who sing to God and fewer who include a father murdering a son in that endeavor. That God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful, it's horrific. That somehow the gospel is God killing his son and the son having no say about it to give himself and to give his life uh, for us. Uh, John 1 verse 29, 
The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He refers to the Old Testament sacrificial system of lambs, and now comes the ultimate sacrifice to die so that we could be forgiven. Jesus said about himself in Matthew 20, verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give, to voluntarily give his life as a ransom, a substitute for many. Jesus also talked about this in John chapter 10. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And then the third character trait of another gospel, progressive Christianity today, is the good news without the bad news. The good news without the bad news. Progressive Christians believe that we are born without original sin and that we are naturally good. Now I find this really confusing because all you have to do is spend some time with a two-year-old and you know that's not true. I absolutely adore our little two-year-old granddaughter, Felicity. But I'm telling you, she demonstrates original sin on a regular basis. Uh, Brian McLaren writes, this good news wasn't simply about a new way to solve the religious problems of ontological fall and original sin. Problems, remember once more, that arise centuries later and within a different narrative altogether that somehow the church invented this whole idea of original sin centuries after Jesus. Whereas Paul wrote to the Christ followers at Rome in Romans 3, verse 23, uh, this is just a, a few years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then later on in Romans 6, 23, he says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the bad news. You gotta fully appreciate the bad news before you can appreciate but the good news, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then a fourth character trait of uh, this other gospel is a Christianity without sexual morality. Nadia Boltz Weber writes, those sexual desires are not something you need to struggle with. They are something to listen to, make decisions about, explore, perhaps have caution about, but struggle with, fight against, make enemies of? Uh, no. Now, as I said before, sexual morality was something that attracted people to following Jesus in the Roman Empire because it brought blessing with it. It brought protection. It brought stability um, with it. And so people recognized that and they were drawn to the high moral standards of the followers of Christ. And the same is true today. Um, researchers through the years have come up with a couple of what they call the golden rules for avoiding poverty. That is, you do these two things. Uh, these are the two most important things in order to avoid uh, poverty. Number one is to get a job and number two is to get married before you have sex and have children. There's a distant third one, which is graduate from high school. So they call them the golden rules. Uh, graduate from high school, but then considered more important than that is to get a job. And then maybe the most important one of all that they found through research that will 
cause people to be able to avoid poverty is get married before you have sex and have children. And if you do those things, it will vastly, researchers have found, reduce um, the poverty um, coming upon you in your life. That's why Paul wrote to the Christ followers in Corinth, which was uh, kind of the Las Vegas of its day. He said to flee from sexual immorality. And then the fifth character trait is the gospel without judgment. Nadia Boltz Weber, again, said one of the more interesting things folks will say to me is, I'm not religious or anything, I just hope that being a good person is enough. To which I always want to say, enough for what? Avoiding the punishment of burning in the eternal fires of some kind of imaginary hell? Progressive Christians believe that everybody is going to make it to heaven in the end. Regardless of what you've done in this life, in the end, it's called universalism, in the end, everybody makes it to heaven. Now, I just want to tell you something. I hope with everything within me, with everything within me, I hope she's right and I'm wrong. Oh, I wish that. With anything, with everything within me, I hope she's right and I'm wrong. I'm just afraid she's not right. That's why we preach the gospel, the gospel, not another gospel, the gospel. When you love somebody, you want to warn them. When you love somebody, you want to share with them the, the vaccine for sin so that they can go to heaven. Uh, Blaise Pascal He's one of the most famous mathematicians in all of history. He was a famous French mathematician. Uh, he's the one that co-invented the calculator, and he's most famous for developing probability theory. So this is a guy that spent his life in calculations and probability. But we know him best as, as he was a follower of Christ, and he came up with this concept called Pascal's wager, or Pascal's bet, or his wager, in which he said, you know, as a follower of Jesus... Um, if I'm wrong and you're right, okay, somebody that doesn't follow Jesus, he says, if I'm wrong and you're right, I haven't lost anything. I mean, uh, my life is, I mean, you know, there's a saying that Jesus makes you, your life better and makes you better at life, and I believe that. And I, if I die and, and, and atheists or progressive Christians are, are right and, and I'm wrong, I just close my eyes and, and I'm dead. And that's all, all there is to it. I haven't lost very much. As a matter of fact, I think I've still gained a wonderful life. But Pascal's wager said, oh, but if followers of Christ are right, and it's those that don't follow Christ are wrong. Oh, the terrible consequences. Oh, the eternal consequences. Hebrews 9, 27, just as people are destined to die once and after this to face judgment. I believe that Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ is greater than another gospel. I believe that Jesus is greater than another gospel. And so because I believe that, I want to give you a chance before we're done to receive Jesus as, as your Lord and as your Savior. You just do three words, sorry, thanks, and please. Sorry, thanks, and please. Oh God, I'm sorry. Pray with me. 
God, I'm sorry for the wrong of my life. I do believe in original sin, and I believe I continue to sin. And I, I am so sorry, but thank you that I believe in the gospel of Jesus, that uh, he came into the world and, and voluntarily uh, died on the cross and shed his blood so that I could be forgiven. Oh, I'm sorry, but thank you. And now, oh God, please, please, Jesus, come into my heart. Forgive me of my sins, um, of my wrongdoing. Be the leader and the Lord of my life because you are greater than another gospel. And the gospel of Jesus is greater than any other gospel. And, and, and you are supreme, that in all things you might have the supremacy. Oh, Jesus, I follow you today, and I open my heart to you today. Oh, God the Father, I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.